listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you're hoping to dodge spoilers for any of today's major topics, including the Blair Witch Project, Naroi the Curse, As Above, So Below, A Head Full of Ghosts, or the Reyes Incident, turn back now! But with that said, today's topic is found footage horror, and we are joined by guest Brianna Morgan. Let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. And here we go. Brianna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm excited for this. Uh, we're hitting on a lot of a lot of movies and a lot of books that are in my top 10. So this is awesome. I've been looking forward to for a while. <laughs> um, and I know the, the Reyes incident, I just read it a couple of weeks ago. So it's still really fresh on my mind. And I'm excited to dig into that. There's just a lot of cool stuff here. It's probably fresher on your mind than it is on mine. <laughs> But that, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I guess first, before we really dive into the found footage stuff, I want to give you a platform for a second to just tell our listeners who you are. Sure. So my name is Brianna Morgan. I am a horror author and a playwright. Some of my books include The Reyes Incident, Mouthful of Ashes, The Trick or Treater, and Other Stories, um, and Other Stories. There's more than one. Uh, Unboxed, and there's like four or five other ones. I have, I have like eight books out, so it's a long list. Um, <laughs> I don't like to hit all of them either because some of the older ones I'm not proud of. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so I, I write about ghosts. Um, I love watching content about ghosts and monsters and all of that. So when I'm not writing, I'm usually playing a spooky video game or watching horror movies. And um, I have two cats and I live in Atlanta. Cool. Yeah, I know the first time I really got connected with you was when you were doing a playthrough of The Forest, I think, on Twitch. And yeah. I started watching along. I didn't get to watch along live any times because my life is chaos with kids, but I was watching <laughs> them after the fact and just like screaming along with you as you were going into those stupid freaking caves. Oh my God, the caves. I still have nightmares about that game. <laughs> <laughs> I am not good at those simulation games where you're supposed to like manage inventory and make sure you don't run out of sticks and stuff. Like I'm hurt. Yeah. Those, so I needed to watch somebody else play it and watching you play that was a delight. That seems like most of the people who are watching me, they're like, you know, I'm too scared to play this, but I'll watch somebody else play it. So I'm <laughs> glad I could be a vehicle for it that way. <gasps> Woo. Okay. So let's, let's get into the found footage stuff then. So um, I know your story, the Reyes incident, definitely feeds into this, but kind of my opening question here is, what the hell is found footage horror? Because that name implies one thing, that it has to be footage, so it would all be video-based, that had mm -hmm. been found after the fact of some incident. But a lot of the examples that we're talking about here today just totally broke both of those rules. So do you have any sort of a hard definition that you try to fall back onto for this, or is it more of a loosey-goosey thing? So it's definitely evolved over time, um, just as the, the subgenre has evolved. And it did used to be pretty much limited to, you know, movies where you could see and hear everything that was happening. But um, a lot of different, it's it's been changed up in a lot of different ways. Like podcasts have done found footage where it's just like audio, because obviously if it's a podcast, you can't see it. You can only hear it. Uh, and then in books, you know, it, it's found footage, but there's no footage because you're reading. So it is a little tricky, but basically found footage is if you were experiencing the story through an invisible narrator, if that makes sense, who's also involved in the story. Okay, I can get behind that. Uh, I was trying to pin it down in my own mind and I just could not come up with any hard, fast rules for it because it seemed like everything that I came up with, there was some immediate counterpoint to it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, it, it has to be, it has to be told from someone's first point, first person point of view. But 
then that totally disregards the Blair Witch Project, where it's not a first-person point of view. Like, you've got that camera, but the, who's mm-hmm. holding the camera constantly shifts around. It's like, right. that's really what it is. So it's, I don't know. It's a really hard thing to define. I'm a history teacher in real life, uh, a, a government teacher, unfortunately, in this day and age. Holy oh. Uh, but one of the things that we talk about a lot in class like one of the one of the first couple weeks is there's an old supreme court case where one of the justices is being forced to try to make a ruling on pornography they were trying to decide if something was pornography or not and yeah uh, justice stewart so his his concluding remark is like he basically just kind of gets to the end of his statement and goes like fuck it i can't define what pornography is but i know it when i see it yeah, That's kind of the way I think found footage movies, books, things are here too. Like I, I can't tell you what it is, but if I'm watching a found footage thing, like I know it. Everybody knows it. Like you, yeah, <laughs> I think the the point of view and the perspective is is also important because you could have a movie with characters who are like a character has a camera and they're filming their friends, and it can be you know not found footage, but then if they turn the camera around and it's filming them and their friends and you feel like you're in the camera, then it's found footage. It, there's a fine line, I guess. Right. So that, I guess that kind of plays around with like the movie host that came out a while ago, actually both of those movies from, I think his name's Jed Shepard or some, something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Host is all focused straight at the, the girl's faces, the entire movie. So clearly found footage, but then dash cam, the one that just came out is a dash cam. So turn it around. It's not facing anybody's faces anymore. So it's like, I don't even, even with those two examples, yeah. guy, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of confusing. And then, you know, you have, I'm sure we'll get into this, but you have games like resident evil biohazard. That's very much like, you know, the game is first person and there's no, there's no found footage in terms of the gameplay you're going through and things are just happening as they happen in the present. But there, there is at least one section where your character finds a videotape right. and then watches the videotape. So it's like an act, a layer of found footage in this otherwise non-found footage media. You're the first guest that's brought up Resident Evil and that's like, oh. that's like <laughs> I love it. Resident Evil 8 was so much fun and I have played it that. It was so fun. So many times. Uh, <laughs> But that's not that's not quite found footage, so I need to leave that alone for now. Uh, no tangents today. This is going to be our first episode. I, I put out the schedule the other day, so I need to I need to keep this focused. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> what what else? Oh crap! Now I've lost my train of thought. You got me thinking about Resident Evil, and I'm just done. Now. I'm sorry. I the <laughs> the worst thing is I only like seven and eight, so uh, a lot of people get mad at me. No love for two or even four. I'm not a third person character person. I'm first person for my horror. I want to feel like I personally am being chased by a giant vampire woman. That's what I want. Hey, there's our perfect segue. So speaking of being chased by a giant vampire woman, I guess vampires may be not quite right here, but being chased by, by a giant scary woman, let's talk about our first movie, kicking it off with The Blair Witch Project. So I guess I want to let you set the stage here uh, with The Blair Witch Project. Why is this one of the first examples that pops to everyone's mind when we say found footage horror. What did it do well? What was your experience with this movie the first time? Yeah, so this movie, The Blair Witch Project, it a lot of people think of it as the first found footage film, but that's not true. It's actually just like the first mainstream found footage film because it like, you know, it became a cult phenomenon and it got really popular when it was still in theaters and whatnot. And a lot of the other found footage media before that point was just, you know, indie studios doing throwaway titles that didn't get discovered until like decades later. And the thing with the Blair Witch Project is they did a lot of like guerrilla marketing, I guess. I was going to say like they made an ARG, but then I realized that a lot of people won't even know (laughs) what I'm talking about. So they, you know, they, they made it feel like you could be part of the the story that was unfolding like the website had information about these kids that had gone missing and I know there were a lot of people who thought that the actors in the movie had actually been harmed or um, were actually missing at the time and so the Blair Witch Project I guess it worked hard to really become part of the culture instead of just you know this is just a movie you can go see with your friends it was like you know, you're going to see this movie and it's going to scare you because it feels really real. And there are these people 
that you feel like you could talk to online. And I, I just, it's the first found footage film I ever saw because it was on AMC's Fear Fest, I think it is. Yeah. That they do every year around Halloween. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I watched it, it was like the middle of the day. And the whole time I was like, it felt like I was watching something I wasn't supposed to be watching. Like, I felt like one of my parents was going to come in and yell at me for watching it. And I think that's what, that's what makes it good found footage. You're like, oh, I shouldn't really be looking at this. This is someone's personal property. But at the same time, it's so good. You can't look away. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned a, a bunch of things here that I kind of want to circle back and touch on. You said it kind of functioned like a very early school ARG. So I, I want to make sure I get these words right. Augmented reality game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, all right. But it, it felt like this thing, like you were saying, that you could interact with. And there was this very thick atmosphere of realism around it, like you were mm-hmm. saying. Beyond just suspend your disbelief while you're in the theater here. It felt like, I think MTV was the one that put it out. But it felt like MTV Probably. went the extra mile to make it feel like not only could this have happened, they tried to sell us on the idea that it did happen. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those people, uh, when I saw the movie for the first time, I did not have parents that were very like open to horror or anything like that. I was very shielded from horror my whole time growing up. So when we turned the movie on for the first time, I didn't get to see it in theaters. I missed that whole boat. Uh, But when I watched it, it was with a friend at their house. Their dad set up a projector in the backyard, like on the edge of the woods. So we were watching that. And his dad, super sick human being, comes out and tells these middle school kids, hey, we found this tape and puts it oh. in. It was like, I hate it. No, that's so good, but it's so bad. That was that was one of the most terrified I've ever been of a movie because it really plays off of that realism promise. It feels perfectly realistic throughout the movie. There's mm-hmm. nothing that happens in here that really tips its hat towards, okay, supernatural nonsense is going on. This isn't mm-hmm. real. There's not really a ghost there or whatever else. Like, anything you see on camera could have happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love, hate it for that all at once. But I think that reality aspect of it is a big cornerstone of this genre. For me, at least, the most successful found footage horror movies are the ones that maintain that element of realism and the ones that I really like that kind of fall apart on me are the ones that try to go really big with it like there's a demon chasing you okay maybe maybe so yeah I don't know Uh, digging into the movie itself so with the Blair Witch Project uh, are there any scenes that really stand out to you thinking back on it now yeah um I the scene where they're all arguing about the map um and they they think they're going in the wrong direction and you just don't know whether they are in going the wrong direction or I watched a really good video that there's a theory that the, the two men, the two boys in the movie actually kill the woman. I cannot remember anybody's name all of a sudden, but there's a theory that they killed her. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like one of those, you know, fun film theories, but that, I mean, because you never see the witch and they kind of gaslight her a lot. Heather. Heather. Yeah. It's Heather. You're so right. And Mikey, Mike is losing his shit in the second yeah. half of this movie. It's like, I could absolutely see him killing her. Mikey's the one that kicks the map into the, into the river. Mikey's the yeah. one that keeps screaming at them that they need to do something else. Josh is. Yeah. Gate. I could see that. Uh, yeah, it was really good. I haven't, be, haven't been able to stop thinking about that since I watched that video. I also really like the part just the subtlety of the when the sticks are in the trees. Yeah. It's not really scary. You're just like, oh, it's sticks. But then you realize that it's not like a natural shape. It's a shape that someone put together. So then you're like, why are there all these sticks in the trees? That one still kind of gets me. And then of course the ending, but the yeah. ending is like just stressful. It didn't even scare me. I was just stressed, I guess. Right. It's I'm just tired. Okay, so those were two of my big takeaways from the movie was that image like you don't even need you don't even need to watch the whole movie anymore or at least I don't if I see that image of Josh just standing and looking at oh the, god the hair yeah. on the back of my neck stands straight back up immediately it's so bad oh it's so bad and it's so good and it's so bad um but the other thing is when I went back and rewatched this movie it's a really hard movie to watch 
just from yeah. from the perspective of these people are mad at each other they are screaming at each other i have a very low conflict tolerance <laughs> so yeah it's, all- it's a hard movie to watch for sure um i as much as i like it i only watch it like once a year i watch it every october um and even then i'm like oh man that I have to really be in the right mindset for it. Okay, so speaking of hard movies to watch, let's spin now into Noroi, The Curse. This is not one of the big Hallmark found footage movies, but you recommended it as 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 a good example of a found footage movie, and it absolutely is. So what made you think of this movie when we were talking about the found footage idea here? Uh, what makes this kind of stand out to you? So it is my favorite found footage film. Uh, I actually, a a friend showed it to me one day. She was just like, hey, I think you'd be really into this. And I I was just obsessed with it. Like, I think I watched it like five times, like right after I'd seen it the first time. And I probably watch it like once every three months now. (laughs) Okay. It just, it it does a really good job of integrating different types of found footage and balancing different tones. Like you have, you have the footage of the people who are ghost hunting and then it cuts to, you know, the children taking the, the psychic tests. And then you go back to the um, talk back or whatever kind of media interview they have where they're talking to the woman who saw the ghost and then Kobayashi-san is there. And um, then you have like, you can, then it goes to the guy with all the foil on him and it's just like all over the place. It's all these different things. And it's like, there are parts where it's funny, but then immediately after it'll like jump to something horrifying. Yeah. The, the super psychic was some amazing comedic relief throughout this movie. Just his overblown like personality kind of gave me a, gave me a breath of levity in the middle of an other yeah. very heavy movie. Yeah, it's very heavy. It's very it's very scary. One thing that I really like that it does is it has that like spooky videotape quality where it looks like the tape is messed up or it looks like it's corrupted and then you see flashes of things. Yes. I love, love, love when movies do that. Yes. So other big things to n- mention here, this is a fully Japanese movie. It is subtitles all the way. So if that is a sticking point for you, this this might not be the movie for you. But I think it is, it's definitely worth kind of going through, giving it your attention, reading those subtitles, Mm -hmm. because like you're saying, it it pulls out of a a variety of different tricks. Um, You've got kind of the game show portion Mm -hmm. of it. You've got the talk show portions of it. It, it, It's it's a very unique film. And I think that Japanese film aspect of it lends a lot of creative taste to it that Mm -hmm. we just don't see with all of the Hollywood washed stuff that we get typically. Like one scene that stood out for me in this movie was the the demonic ritual in the town that was going to get flooded when they've got this old- When they're, yeah, appeasing Kagutawa. Right, right, right. I couldn't remember the demon's name, so I didn't want to try to say it. <laughs> with the with the mask and the where they do the clap. Oh God. Yeah. And then they, when she does the clap in the boat later, it, oh, it freaks me out. Yes, yes, yes. It was all so expertly done. The reason I was saying that it's it's hard to watch, though, I am not. I'm not big on dead baby horror. Uh, yeah, there is a little bit of that. Got. It's definitely got some elements of that in it. The the crying, the crying sound that they keep coming back to. That's like, a lot. And then um, I know I know people who have had problems with the dogs. That doesn't bother me because they look so fake to me in in this one. <laughs> Dead dogs and other things tend to bother me, but I I'm like that that is stuffed. That's not. Yeah. Which is good, but yeah, if if you have anything against, if you're not big on animal death in any form, even though you don't see anything you do see like dog carcasses. So maybe don't watch it. Right. Does the dog die in this movie? Yes. Very. Yeah. It's always, (laughs) it's always the scene I forget about because someone will ask me if there are like dead animals in it and then I'll be like, no. And then there's, there's birds and there's crows and there's dead dogs. And I'm like, I just forgot every single animal somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the birds are easy to forget. They like hit the windows. You see them lying on the ground. The dogs, the dogs are a big plot point though. Yeah, they just disappear. So how would you compare Neroe the Curse to Blair Witch Project? 
Uh, if somebody hasn't seen Neroe, they're mm. trying to decide if they want to kind of make that leap. Like, what does it do differently than Blair Witch did to kind of bring it to the next level of found footage? Um, I think it, there's a wider spectrum of emotions involved. You're not just like tense and kind of scared and angry the whole time. You get to, you get some moments to breathe and you get to, you get to not forget about what's going on, but you forget like the serious part of what's going on in the movie. And then when it snaps you back to it, the juxtaposition makes it that much more scary. Okay. Because you're like, oh, I was just laughing at, you know, kids doing ESP. And then all of a sudden there's there's this woman who hanged herself like pretty dramatic difference yeah it it goes it goes back and forth pretty violently which we we didn't really talk about this with Blair Witch but you're making a good point now like the Blair Witch project as a movie is just one long drawn out gut punch like you do not get a chance to stop anywhere in that movie but this one does kind of ebb and flow a little bit more so yeah and it does a great job of building up to like the terror but you you know you do get it it is spaced out so you're not like emotionally exhausted by the end and i think another thing that really helps it is that it's in japanese because you know it's really powerful storytelling when you can just be like reading subtitles and still get chills and i feel like that movie definitely does that some of the lines um and the actors are all great and i'm just like okay i don't I don't speak that much Japanese. So there was some cultural stuff in there, some spiritual beliefs and whatnot that are different. You know, none of that is really in Blair Witch. There's no like gods or demons or anything pulled into it. So if, if that kind of thing is more your style, you should definitely check it out. I agree with all of that. Okay. So uh, another bigger picture thing, thing I'm trying to hit at here that I don't think I ever actually spelled out yet on the podcast is something that I see a lot with the found footage genre is this genre as much as if not more than other genres or subgenres within horror really seems to feel the need to constantly grow and evolve whereas it started with a lot of very simple straightforward projects like Blair Witch it seems like every found footage movie or thing that we get nowadays feels some need to shake up the formula a little bit mm-hmm. so in Rowie, uh, we've got those multiple different like styles of found footage being spliced together mm-hmm. and then the next movie that we've got lined up here as above so below kind of takes all of that and pushes it one envelope farther. Uh, so do you want to talk about As Above, So Below first, or do you want me to? This is going to be like a very different conversation on both sides. So yeah. I don't know. But I think, I think I know what you don't like about that one. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, but is it, it they take it just a little too far? Yep. It's Okay. It's just pushed a little far. I mean, they're just like, oh, we're in the catacombs. And then it's like, oh, we're in literal hell. I'm like, ah, mm, okay (laughs) i don't know it is kind of a retelling of dante's inferno but it's it's a lot yeah it's a lot people either love that movie or they hate it so you're definitely not alone i love it but my approach to horror especially i'd say in the last 10 years i've just been like no expectations if i like it i like it i don't really pay attention to critics anymore because i tend to like a lot of movies that aren't critical successes yes and yeah so that one I was like I'm just here to have fun and I had a good time so (laughs) um I really like the atmosphere in that one though because the the catacombs just scare the hell out of me I'm claustrophobic there's a lot of that in there um just just thinking about caves I hate it it makes me itchy so you're a huge fan of the descent then oh I love the descent but I can't watch it (laughs) I've watched it twice and both times I was just like sweating about 20 minutes into it and then just sustained throughout it felt like i'd run a marathon by the end of it (laughs) that one is so hard and i went back we're getting totally off topic again here whatever (laughs) i I went back and watched the the special features on the descent like how they made it and it's all these studio sets like they didn't actually go into any caves nobody's ever in danger but the way they shot it was just so tight and genuine like oh yeah claustrophobic feeling anyhow and I mean, there's only like bits and pieces of that in As Above, So Below, and it's still like, ugh. there's a couple sections where they're underwater for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And anytime there's an underwater scene in a movie, I hold my breath as long as the characters do just to see if it's realistic. <laughs> Which I don't actually think I've told anyone that before. So there you go. There's an inside scoop. 
what's the success rate there? Like how many movies are realistic versus not? Um, most of them are, most of them are. As Above, So Below is, I've caught a couple that's just like, and it's ones you wouldn't expect, like the fan of the opera movie from like 2004. There's a whole part where Raoul's underwater for what must be 10 minutes. And I'm like, this man cannot breathe. There's no way. <laughs> I'm going to start trying that now. Holding my breath. I just hold my breath. And then if someone's watching with me, they'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. So the the claustrophobic element of As Above, So Below that you're talking about, those are the ones that definitely do work for me. So the scene where they're crawling over the bones. And yeah. Amber's just freaking out. Like, that's it for me. That is great. That I mean, it's horrible, but it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I thought that was really effective. The places that this falls apart on me come kind of coming back to my first claims here about found footage this movie fell apart for me in just the total lack of believability in certain parts so it starts in the very beginning when ben feldman pops up on the screen in that bell tower running around it's like oh that's the actor from that supermart show uh, uh also from silicon valley if you watch that yes i forgot about him in that oh he's the God. attorney Yes, the goofy. I loved the first three seasons of Silicon Valley. They kind of lost me there. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it's it's really it's funny because like I watched As Above So Below first, and then Silicon Valley, and I was like, hey, it's that guy. He made it out so, of the catacombs. Yeah, I was like, he did it. Good for him. He escaped the indie horror nexus. He's out of there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But if, if we're going to make a found footage movie and the whole promise of this like style of movie is this could have really happened. And then I see some big famous actor sitting there in front of me just immediately. I kind of fall out of it a little bit. And the movie just from that point on just really doesn't do anything to draw you back in. It's yeah, Deanna Jones in France. And I love that concept, but it's just such this weird juxtaposition for me of what's being promised with the found footage movie versus what we're actually watching play out. Like, why didn't you just shoot this normally? Yeah, I I mean, like I said, I think I like it because I'm just like, I'm just here to have fun. And it's fun. It's entertaining. But the other, the one, the one thing, the one conceit of it that really bothers me is how there's no, the camera's not left, I don't think at any point. I think there's one point where they maybe at the end they drop it I think but that's when they're supposed to be potentially in hell so then it's like who who found this I think the camera made it out so we've got that scene at the end where they're kind of crawling up and then they fall out into the world and yeah one of the survivors has the camera with them there but there yeah I think you're right there's other points in the movie where they drop it as they're running and then there's no shot of like somebody running back out of the background like ah the camera yeah so i'm not sure and i'm maybe i'm just forgetting um because i'm like behind on my annual watch of it but yeah it's um another thing is like i liked the spooky like the spooky phone ringing that got me Mm -hmm. telephones ringing is always scary to me i think maybe it's because i have social anxiety but like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> telephones ringing when they shouldn't be and doorbells ringing when no one should be there those those creep me out and uh yeah so that that's effective for me I can even get behind some of the stuff with like the guy who his his brother died in a car fire or whatever that was I liked the idea that he's like having to relive that over and over and that's like his personal help but it wasn't translated I don't think as effectively as it could have been because a lot of that stuff the first time you watch that movie, you don't even piece that together. Right. And I I remember the car scene pretty vividly because when they come around the corner and they see the car burning there, I remember that was a really effective thing. For me. I was really mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, there's a car underground. In the catacombs. Like, yeah. This isn't realistic. It's still like, it, it's still good and it's still scary and this has got me. But then what they do with it is like, doesn't it just suck the guy towards the car and like stick him under the ground a little bit with his feet still sticking up or something? Yeah. Like it was something just really goofy that they ended on. It was, yeah, uh, you could have done so much better with this. I mean, even like it would have been cool if, you know, he was looking at the car one minute and then there's like a the camera moves a little bit. And then when it pans back, like he's the one inside the car that could have been good. Sure, yeah. 
the oh. I, the feet thing was goofy. Um, <laughs> don't really know what that was about. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. they had a show where he went somehow. I guess. I guess feet is the only way to do that. <laughs> but I do like the movie. I like most of the characters, I think. I do like the idea that each one of them has done, you know, something that they have to atone for. And that's, you know, they, ha- they have to confess it down there if they're going to get past it. I liked that a lot. Yeah. But I-, I think the idea of the camera under those circumstances is not not realistic. <laughs> yeah. If So kind of coming back to where we started all of this, if they had shot it like The Descent, I think I would like it a lot more. I, I think I could get behind that a lot more. Yeah. A lot of the plot hole things that irk me would be gone just immediately by switching the style. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm being maybe I'm being too critical here. Maybe I'm just being that like curmudgeonly person, like, oh, they screwed up the continuity on the one thing. I have people argue with me over as both so below all the time. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I like the movie, but I'm not gonna tell anyone that they're wrong for not liking it. It's yeah. Um, it's it's subjective. It's not an objective thing. Not every piece of art is going to resonate with everyone. So yeah, it's like I so much prefer talking about movies and reviewing movies and stuff like that in this fashion rather than the stupid star system. Because like I don't yeah. know what I would give this movie as a star. Like I didn't I didn't love it, but that doesn't mean I'm anti this movie. Like I wouldn't give it a one star or anything like that. that that's how I am with books too. I've Lately, I've had to, I've stopped giving star ratings and I've stopped writing long reviews because now we're getting into difficult territory where it's like some of these people are my colleagues and they're people I see a couple times a year at, you know, professional events and whatnot. So it's like, I don't feel entirely comfortable reviewing their work. I'll just say, you know, this book is good. I liked it. Or I just don't talk about it. Okay. So let's, let's have this conversation for a second then, because I'm starting to get into this spot too. Like, because I'm reading a lot of indie books right now by authors that I really like as people. I'm enjoying interviewing, stuff like mm-hmm. that. My default has become, ah, screw it. I'm just giving everything five stars now. And then I'll actually like write what I think within that thing. So the star rating like helps yeah. whatever. And then if there were a couple of ideas or things that didn't quite land for me, maybe I can talk about that in the review, but I still like the book. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Stars, yay. But that feels kind of dishonest at the same time, but also like, giving somebody three stars for a book that I did enjoy a lot of parts of like also feels wrong because for some people three stars is a slap in the face yeah I get some baffling reviews that people tag me in sometimes um like sometimes they'll tag me in one and two star reviews and just be like this book was dog shit (laughs) and I'm like you don't have to tag me in that like I will see it rude um (laughs) But then some people, some people will tag me in a three star and think it's fine and they will be lovely and they'll say nothing but good things about the book. And then other people take the three stars. And again, they're like, this is dog shit. So yeah, it's like stars mean different things to everybody. And I I tend to give a lot of books five stars just because it's like, I don't, I don't read books. I don't like anymore. Like if I don't like it, I'm going to stop reading it. Yeah. So usually the only books that I finish are four and five star books. Yeah. And if I don't finish it, you just won't hear about it ever again. <laughs> right. My TBR is way too deep for me to power through what's going to be a one star read or a two star read. Yeah. yeah. And I have books from friends that like aren't published yet. And it's hard to like, I can't say anything about those because they're not out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So stars are stupid. This is what we're Yeah. I, I don't like it either. It should be like, I mean, Netflix does a lot of things wrong, but you know how Netflix is a thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Like just that, that's fine. Say you liked it or you didn't like it. It'll get the point across. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all that said, like, I also don't want to lose the power of a good review. Like I've picked up so many books by reading through a review of something being like, oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. like exactly my alley. So I don't, I don't know where the compromise is here. Yeah, I know, especially with Reyes, a lot of people have picked it up based on reviews they've read or things they've seen because like you can't, you don't really know that it's found footage um, unless you've talked to me or interacted with me in any capacity. You wouldn't know just by looking at it and then the review will say something like, this is found footage. And then sometimes I'll see people comment like, oh shit, I didn't know that there was found footage in this. I'm totally picking it up. So you're right. 
it does help sometimes. Um, I also have personally picked up horror books before based on one star reviews where it's like, this is disgusting. This made me vomit. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm getting that one. That's coming home with me. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I hope he doesn't mind us just throwing his name out on the podcast without any like interaction. But I know Duncan Ralston's womb is going through oh, yeah. that right now. Like, Yeah, he's, he's a good dude. And yeah, it, it blew up on TikTok. I read it. I want to, I feel like I read it like right before it got big and I'm kind of glad because I like, I got to experience how disgusting it was untainted from everyone else yeah. instead of like, I feel like a lot of it's been spoiled now, especially okay. on TikTok. Cause people will be like, it ends like this, or there's this part in it. And then I'm like, you know, if you, there's so much lead up to that part, you can't just go in and just, you already know the biggest kind of not twist, but the big, like. The juicy part, I guess. So I am not on TikTok. I cannot dance. I will not put myself through that. <laughs> and I have not read Womb quite yet. Um, it, it's on my pile, but I haven't gotten to it. So one, thank you for not spoiling the juicy part here. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you had read it. So I was like, let me just <laughs> back up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this was perfect. And we, we did It's gross. It's definitely gross. I'll yeah. say that. Okay, I'm in. I... I have not read a gross extreme horror thing in a while, but everybody's yeah. tell me on this. So let's, let's do it. And Thanks. it's just, it's so funny because Duncan's like such a nice dude. That's how it is though. In the horror community, I feel like they're the nicest people you will ever meet. And they all write the most twisted shit you can imagine. <laughs> right. So why is that a thing? Is this like an outlet? We get all of the little bad vibes out into our stories and then it just freezes up to be totally cheerful people in the normal. And I don't probably I don't broad strokes here. Like there, there are some heels in the helper community, right? There, there's some. Bad yeah. On the whole, you're right that like most of the people I interact with here, they're great people. I love them. Yeah, everyone's super nice. In fact, last year, it was my first time attending Scares That Care and my fiance went with me and he'd never been to any kind of horror convention or anything like that. And he was just like, everybody is so nice here. (laughs) He was surprised. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there will be people like all wearing black and, you know, fake blood and all that stuff. But then it's like, they're sweet. They're all sweethearts. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe it's, maybe, maybe we're all working out our stress in healthy ways. That's it. We found our coping mechanism and the rest of the world hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Books. Uh, would we like to talk about the Reyes incident first or Head Full of Ghosts first? Because we got both of them on the menu here. So we can talk about Head Full of Ghosts, but I don't remember. I read that book like three years ago. So I'm a little spotty on that one but I, I remember highlights. Okay, so we don't need to spend too much time on this then. I'll kind of set the stage because the big reason that I kind of proposed it was, I guess, twofold. Uh, one, this is my favorite read of all time. I love it's this book. It's so good. The it scared time. me so much. Yes. What scared me the most is the scene, the scene where she's like talking to her sister in the hallway and her sister just stands there and pees on herself. Yes. That I don't know why. That scared the shit out of me. That one, the the growing things with that little fort that they had in the room. Um, oh. and they were talking about the growing things coming through the floor. That was such an effective scene. And I know Paul Tremblay went out and he made a whole short story about it later on in his Growing Things anthology. But that was so effective. And just the ending. So a full spoiler podcast, yeah. we're going there. That ending of this girl has potentially been possessed the entire book. We're trying to suss out if she's doing this for attention, if this is some mental disorder, if she's really possessed by something. And we just see, quote unquote, because it's a book, see, we see her standing on the banister at the end and just steps off. Yeah. Everything. And even that, that could have, should have been the big reveal of, oh, okay, this is what's happening. She stepped off the banister. She broke her leg. She's obviously not possessed because the demon would have had her float, right? Yeah. Or is it the demon screwing with her and just letting her break as she falls? Even when it's all said and done, you're still left with all of these questions. It's ambiguous endings done right, built up to by tons and tons of good, scary moments. I just, I adore the book. I really like how they include the the blog posts in that one. That's what, that's what I liked. And I liked how it was like a third hand account almost because it's like the, the blog posts are talking about this show that the girl and her sister and their family like took part in 
So it's kind of like a, a review for anyone who hasn't read the book. So it's a little like one, two, three, yeah, like three layers deep. Right. And there's there's also a film crew making a documentary of the whole thing. So supposedly yeah. got a lot of these firsthand accounts there. But then it's the daughter. I want to call her Wen, but Wen's the girl in Cabin at the End of the World. Not this book. Yeah. But the, the, oh, the daughter is trying to retell the story later on. And there's just all these different layers. It's so great. I will say this as many times as possible until somebody from some studio contacts me about it. This is my passion project. When I win the lottery... I am making a production studio. We are making a found footage TV show out of this out of this book. They, I think, I think it got optioned pre-pandemic. Really? Um, yeah, I can't remember who did it. Okay, but I think he sold the rights. Ah, uh, but selling the rights and it actually getting made. There's such a big gap between there. Don't get my hopes up. No. Theoretically, somebody wants it. <laughs> that's that's the only certainty I can give you. So I guess M. Night Shyamalan's next movie, Knock at the Cabin, the curtain just got pulled back on that. And it's an adaptation of Paul Tremblay's Cabin at the End of the World book. That was such a wild thing to find out because I've, I've never seen them do that before where they, yeah. it's just got like a completely different thing and they're detaching it from the author for a while. I mean, it didn't take long to uncover that, but yeah. it's just wild. They're definitely going like, for a more more mainstream, I guess, audience who's not as familiar with Paul's work. Right, but I feel like M. Night Shyamalan is the perfect vehicle for a Paul Tremblay adaptation. Like, his name will get people in the door immediately, despite old, oh my gosh, that movie. I haven't seen it yet, um, because I don't want it to age me. <laughs> That's what seems, what it seems to do to people who have seen it. So I would like to not age. Fair, fair enough. Uh, save that two hours of your life, or <laughs> just watch your life. I'll just watch the village again, or signs. Right, those are so good. Sixth Sense, like Unbreakable. Yeah. Sixth Sense was my first horror film. I think Signs was my first horror movie. Oh, that's a good one too. But yeah, so my big hope here, I guess, is that Knock at the Cabin is really successful, and Tremblay becomes the new Stephen King, and they just make a ton of Tremblay movies. Yeah, I think he's well on his way. But then the other big thing here. That, that I was going to try to connect to the Reyes incident was this idea that for the first time in found footage stories, we've got kind of a new angle worked in here. We've got the unreliable narrator, like you said. Whereas with all of the movies leading up to this point, that's been the one thing you could trust. I don't really trust these actors. I don't really trust anything that they say they're seeing or any of their reactions to this stuff because they might be seeing stuff that's not there, Blair Witch Project. But at least I know the camera is going to be honest with me. And yes. then that happens in Blair Witch, that happens in Neroe, that happens in As Above, So Below even. Yeah, but we get you can trust the camera. Right. And with Head Full of Ghosts and with Rhea's incident, we can't trust the person telling the story anymore. So yeah, I, I want to I throw it to you again here. When you were writing the Rhea's incident, when you were conceptualizing this, how much of a big factor was that? How much did you want us to trust Liv or not know if we should trust Liv? Um, I love an unreliable narrator. And this was the first book where I've done multiple points of view. And I decided pretty early on that I wanted both of them to be unreliable narrators, which is not, somehow it's not a thing that a lot of people have picked up on. They, they pick up on Liv, but not necessarily Andy, mm -hmm. or people will complain about um, Andy being flawed, but she is an unreliable narrator as well. So yeah, that I wanted that to be part of it, along with the ambiguous ending. Those were the two big things I wanted for the book in the found footage, I guess three big things. So I don't want to get to the ending quite yet. Let's let's build up to that. We'll stay away from spoiler that. Okay. before we get to the ending in case somebody wants to listen to this, mm -hmm. not have the ending tarnished for them. Go ahead and can you set the stage for us with the Reyes incident? Like, what is this book? What are we walking into here? Yeah, so the Reyes incident, it's about this, this cop in Georgia. Her name is Andy, and she gets called in to work and reassigned to a case there's this girl who's just come into the precinct and she's got blood on her and she has this wild story about like her friends have all gone missing some of them are dead and she just wants to tell someone her story so she sits down and andy tries to interview this girl and get to the bottom of like whatever's going on and i mean skipping a lot of things right the girl lives she says basically that her friends all got killed by by mermaids living in a flooded bunker in the middle of a forest. 
so there's there's that and andy kind of has to decide you know she has to prove essentially whether Liv is telling the truth or if you know she's just full of shit and she killed her friends or any other number of possibilities but basically she has to determine whether Liv is her testimony is real so beyond the found footage thing there are a lot of wild elements in this uh, yeah <laughs> the mermaids to start with like you don't see mermaid horror very often i know tim mcgregor's got a book out called lore right now and th- there's a couple of other mm-hmm. projects that have popped up but for the most part killer mermaids is just totally this untapped thing yeah so i love that and then second thing the setting like you don't have killer mermaids at a beach you've got killer mermaids <laughs> In a bunker in the woods? How do you come up with that? So that one, my fiance, bless him, he is such a patient man. He <laughs> he did not really like horror or anything spooky. Couldn't really get into it until we started dating. And then he was kind of like, you know, he has Stockholm Syndrome with horror now. Like he, he has to kind of like it. Um, but he sent me this article one day. He's like, hey, I don't know if you've heard about this. There's this kind of spooky thing going on with Dawson Middle Forest where there's this old aircraft lab that's like radioactive and flooded and you can't go in there and all this stuff. So he started sending me all these articles about this place, which is a real place that you can go to. And it is radioactive and it was owned by the military and it is flooded. But I mean, obviously there are not, as far as we know, killer mermaids down there. Let's go find out. Yeah, so (laughs) that's one of those settings that I I don't think I would have come up with that if if it wasn't a real place because it, it is ridiculous but it's a real place i haven't been um but i've debated going sometime i think it would be fun the only thing is it is radioactive and i think if you go in there the military will kick your ass so okay fair enough <laughs> a couple elements there to be aware of we'll uh we'll we'll find the shadiest motel as close to the radioactive bunker uh, the radioactive military bunker is possible. There you go. But yeah, so, okay, we've got the killer mermaids now. We've got the radioactive bunker. So then the next thing that really caught me off guard with this story was just the characters themselves. Like all of them start out as kind of these like cookie cutter stereotypes for the first couple of pages. Like you've got, mm-hmm. you've got the ex-boyfriend, you've got the girl that's come in and replaced the girl that went to film school. Um, it, all of these kind of seem like they're they're going to play a certain way, but you do a fantastic job of giving all of the characters this great depth as we go through the story. Like they do not, let me be careful how I phrase this because we haven't gotten to the spoiler section yet. They do not end the way that they begin the story. Yes. <laughs> Hardly any of them. I guess, would you care to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So for this just wild ass story, um, I figured if there was going to be elements like killer mermaids in a bunker and whatnot, that you had to have something more realistic to kind of ground yourself in. And I think there's something in each of the characters, at least I hope so, where someone can kind of recognize themselves as they're reading and kind of try to experience things through that person's point of view. Um, I did, I would say I spent the longest, when I was planning this, I spent the longest on the characters, making sure that I was, um, you know, make, I'm trying to not spoil, making sure that they ended up in a different place than they started. Should we should we go ahead and just throw up the spoiler tag so that we can- We can, yeah. Okay, spoiler tag. If you are planning to read the Reyes incident and you do not want to know the fate of all of these wonderful characters, let's go ahead and stop. Thanks for tuning in. Three, two, one, here we go. All right, spoiler. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I was gonna say, I changed the dedication of it so that it says like to the families of and then the people who die so you know if you read the dedication you know who's going to die but then you're still like how are they going to die when's it going to happen right and i think that's a big trick with it too because we see in the beginning Liv is here covered in yeah blood, and it's obviously just her blood but it's just her right so it's it's one of those things where you kind of can assume what's going to go down here but yeah watching it unfold is grotesque uh in the best ways yeah <laughs> Um, do you have one death that that you uh, I don't want to I don't want to make you pick favorites here, but do you have a favorite death? <laughs> All of the deaths kind of got me in a different way. Ryan, I would say Ryan is like my least favorite because it it's quick and it's not really. I, f- I think that's one of the ones you don't really see a lot of it. Ryan was the very last one, right? As Liv is climbing out of the. That's no, Alex. Oh darn it! I got the names mixed up. 
that's okay. Ryan was Ryan's the ex. Okay, Ryan was the ex. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that one. I mean, it was okay. That one was gross, but you had just seen, you know, his brother Ben get torn apart, which is probably the nastiest thing in there. So. Oh, and that was so nasty too. But then you also followed it up with the mermaid popping up again a couple of pages later with the kid's intestines wrapped around her neck like a shawl. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted, I was like, okay. So an unfortunate thing about writing horror is if you write a scary woman, people will objectify her. And I was like, I have to make these mermaids not hot. So they have to do gross things. And that was like the grossest thing I could think of. Very well done. (laughs) <laughs> they're monsters they're not it's not like ariel they're disgusting so right and unfortunately i think with mermaids that is everyone's like starting point with that is like these uh, ariel and the little mermaid who animated character running around in a bikini so like, whatever yeah or even if we're going back farther like if you go into like the sirens luring sailors off of their ships there's this yeah there's this like draw to them they're supposed to be uh, appealing and stuff like that and you broke that stereotype so hell yeah (laughs) yeah I was like okay they gotta be pale because there's no sun in there I wanted each one to represent kind of a different fish and then I I was like you know they have dead looking eyes they have serrated teeth they have like webbed hands just not not human in any way I remember didn't one of them have like the lionfish Thins. yeah uh i think harper harper yep i changed their names so they were their names before were colors so in my head sometimes i still call them by the the old names right, just because right. those were like my placeholder names <laughs> it was like red and black and blue <laughs> yeah um i alex's death circling back to the death thing alex's death upset me a lot because i always it always gets me when people know they're going to die and they sacrifice themselves Mm -hmm. like any movie with that in it i'm talking like almost any movie like it happens i think in click and it happens in stranger than fiction where (laughs) the character's like okay i have to die and then they just do it that always gets me so that one bothered me um claire's death bothered me because you know they think she's dead and then they find her later and she's not dead and then they have to mercy kill her. That's bad also. So honestly, I feel like they were all my favorite in different ways except for uh, except for Alec or Ryan's. And Ryan was kind of a jerk. So if he gets the subplot. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's bring it out of the bunker then. So Andy and Liv's story kind of takes a takes an unexpected turn near the middle of the book do you do you want to talk about that for a second yeah so andy you you kind of get get hints as the book goes on that she you know she's in an unhappy marriage they lost a son you don't really find out like who the father was um you don't really find out how the kid died you just see that it's you know it's this anniversary they they mention and they dance around and um she and her wife are high school sweethearts, but it's just not really working anymore. So you see that she's unhappy with that. There's some tension with her, with Andy and her boss at work because her boss is her father. So there's a lot of, they butt heads a lot. And then she's a lesbian in a small Georgia town. So there's some, some stigma there as well. So she just has a bunch of points against her. And then when she, she gets put on Liv's case, she's kind of just like, I've never worked a homicide before. If this is homicide... I really need to make sure it's homicide. And she develops a rapport with Liv that turns into a kind of flirtationship, I guess would be the best word. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's an affair, but it's not a full on, it doesn't quite go as far as it could. I really liked, as I was reading it, the, the subtleties in Andy and her soon to be estranged wife's relationship. I think mm-hmm great job of painting that picture of they don't hate each other mm-hmm. they're, they're it's just it's just not working and I feel like typically with authors telling stories like this if you've got a failing marriage then it's just the authors tend to paint in these very black and white like nope they're a bad person they hate each other there's there, there's nothing to be salvaged here Ma. yeah but you did a really good job with the nuances of that I really appreciated that struggle that you were able to paint there yeah, and I really wanted, I mean, they, they've known each other since high school. They've been through a lot of things together, and I, I couldn't see it ending poorly. 
So I guess the last question with Reyes incident before we'll, we'll start putting a bow on all this. Is there anything new that you feel like you brought to the found footage genre with the Reyes incident? Was there any trick that you really want readers to take notice of as they're diving into it or any sort of a hook that you would want to pull them in with here? That's a big question. That's asking me to put myself <laughs> kind of on a pedestal. I'm trying to get better at pointing out my strengths and things because a lot of my life I was kind of taught to talk that down, especially, I mean, because I'm a woman, I think that's a lot of it. Um, and so the, just the idea that I would contribute something meaningful to the subgenre is wild to me. And it really shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise because that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on how everyone else has experienced found footage in the past, but I mean, so it starts with, it starts with a police report. Um, and there's like emails scattered throughout, but then, you know, lives. Liv's testimony is kind of found found footage. They're talking, but it's not really, it's like narrative. So it's more like as above, so below, and that it is, it's found footage, but it's like narrative framed. Okay. So yeah, if you don't, <laughs> but then I don't want to like, I don't want to say that if you don't, didn't like as above, so below, you won't like Reyes because that's not, they're not the same at all. Well, okay, here, I'll, I'll piggyback on this a little bit. Yeah. I love as above so below. I did really like the Reyes incident. So okay, I was going to say I feel like someone who's not me would do a better job with I, this. I will part. say that for you. I, I will. I will be the one that that plants that flag in the ground. This this does not fail in the same shortcomings as as above so below did. I think something really fun with this book was that filter that was built in that Liv is telling this story to Andy. So even though it does get kind of wild and crazy, like, uh, I don't really see any of this happening in real life. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe this is all just live story. Like she murdered them. And this is some crazy, fantastical thing that she knows nobody's ever going to check up on. I yeah. think that mystery element of it. If I was going to put words in your mouth, I think that mystery element is something that really shakes up the genre a little bit. Uh, yeah, I really, I like I said, I knew from the beginning I wanted it to be ambiguous because I really like ambiguous endings. Um, and the idea of ending, of it ending, you know, not with a, a narrative point, but it's just the short email. It's like the email almost, we've we've all either typed or seen and it's just very like business and matter of fact. And it's, it's to her father, but she still like does the full formal address and everything. And you're like, what? what happened here right and it it does not give you the answers even though you know she found the answers or she found something she found something something she found something that was so provocative that she was like i can't do this anymore so yeah i and people some people have like have asked me they're like oh did did Liv kill her friends was she just using andy was she just you know pretending to like her so she'd be sympathetic and all of this and i'm like well i know as the author, but I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. That takes oh, all the fun out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you could, I can give you an answer, but it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I like the, ambi I like the ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity. Yeah. Words are hard. Yeah. Say. It's like in the chainsaw, Texas chainsaw massacre, the original, how like you don't see the people getting carved up you just hear it and you imagine it and I think that's worse yeah. so I figured like just you know the idea of the reader trying to figure out what the hell it was that she saw is is worse than anything I could probably come up with I mean you've already heard about people getting torn apart and intestines being worn as necklaces and whatnot like I can't I can't do much more than that yeah it's it's your version of the camera dropping at the end of the Blair Witch Project yeah, uh, yeah. what caused that camera to drop our, our imaginations are going to be so much worse than anything that could have put it on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So I guess final wrap up question. Let's bring everything together uh, for the end of the episode here. The, the question I want to try to ask everybody at the end of these episodes is if you are playing around in this trope again, um, because yes. you've already written a found footage, you get approached by either a publisher or a production house or any sort of a benefactor that is going to give you lots and lots of money uh, to make the best found footage project 
you can come up with, what would you want to make? Would you want to make a found footage movie? And what would be the pitch for it? Would you want to write like the big epic novel? What would be the pitch for it? Like, what do you do? What's your... I have thought about this. I I have a secret project with a friend right now. Okay. They're just co-writing like just for fun. So I don't want to like mention that idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go with a different one. It would be a movie. The found footage on a cruise ship. Okay. Maybe a haunted cruise ship because I like ghosts or maybe there's some kind of gross monster. Or both. Yeah, so... <laughs> But it would be, um, in my head, this movie that doesn't exist would be different. You know, some of it would be people recording themselves on vacation on their phone and you see something in the back. Or there would be, you know, the surveillance camera in the hallway. Like, you have different elements. Okay, so... But they're all tied together because they're all on the boat. Gotcha. Taking a very Neroe approach to it then. Yeah, yeah. Different kind of lenses to see it through. That's- yeah. Plus, I mean, how many horror movies take place on a boat besides Ghost Ship? You said that, and I thought Ghost Ship, and I thought Amakatsu's The Deep, and that is where my brain stopped. Oh, like, that's it- uh, she's so good. That's such a good book. Um, I just that reminds me, I just got the fervor in from my library today, and I'm starting <laughs> it tonight, and I'm so excited. But yeah, I was like, <laughs> the two, like the two of the main ideas I've had for found footage horror have been like old old people's home and cruise ship which i realize are kind of the same right you've got a place that you're not all allowed to leave with a closed circuit <laughs> camera always running yeah i guess the big difference there would be the old people's home you would have a lot of like funny shots of old people trying to figure out how to use the technology yeah yeah <laughs> um <laughs> which you know, the cruise, the cruise, I think what's scariest to me about the cruise idea is like, you're, where are you going to go? You are on a boat. You cannot leave. So if anybody wants to give me like a shit ton of money to write that and film that and do that, I would love to do that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Please reach out to, to (laughs) let's get this thing going. Um, ready. We need more boat horror. We need more found footage horror, we do. boat horror, but okay. Oh my gosh. This is a thing we haven't talked about at all. I know we said we were wrapping up the episode, but one more question. That's fine. With found footage horror, a big thing with it is these are typically very low budget affairs. So yes, you know, my pitch for this was give you millions of dollars, let you make a cruise ship found footage movie. Uh, that's kind of a hallmark of the genre is the fact that they don't spend a lot of money and horror movies in general don't spend a lot of money so all the money they make is just bonus money yeah Um, i think is why producers like our genre so much but especially with found footage do you think that is a blessing for the genre or a curse for the genre do you do you like the small scale tight budget approach i like smaller scale um for sure there's (laughs) The Paranormal Activity series is a great example. The first one was very scary and it was very cheap. And as they kind of got more money, it the quality of the, the immersion factor really dropped off for me because, you know, you get to multiple cameras and then you get to, I honestly, I didn't watch past the second one. Yeah. Or the third, the third one, I think, is the one where they're in the different home and there's all the cameras. I don't know. Anyway, when they started to get more money, it um, it just kind of lost, I guess, its sense of credibility. Right. With that series, I remember I watched the first one and the second one, and both of them were good. The first one, clearly better. Second one's still fine. Yeah. The first, first one I saw in theaters the night it came out. Um, and it scared me so bad when I got home, I slept with the television on for the whole night. <laughs> so you substituted uh, paranormal activity for poltergeist scares. Yeah. So <laughs> I was just like, okay, I, I miss being so new to the genre that that would happen to me. Like I very seldom get scared to that level anymore. I mean, like I'll get a jump scare here and there, but that's evolution. That's not really... Yeah. That's not impressive. Like you, you throw something at someone, they're going to react that way. Yeah. The re- reflexive instead of true. Yeah. The horror that like, oh God, the last time I felt this was um, reading Bird Box three years ago by Josh Mallerman. I have a guess at what scene you're about to talk about. 
No, just the whole thing. It's oh. so uncomfortable. Just the idea that ugh, like when she's in the boat and you can't see anything. And I'm like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. I feel like I'm going to throw up. And then I put, I would put the book down and I'd lay in bed and I'd be like, I still feel like I'm going to throw up. I'm still nervous. Yes. Oh my gosh. Josh, Josh Mallard. When they're trying, when they're trying to drive the car and they've got all the, the shit on the windshield and they can't see. Yep. <laughs> oh God. There's so much. I'm just so. That book made me so sick. <laughs> <laughs> I had this constant sense of dread while I read it, but the two scenes that really stood out to me were when when one of the characters goes into the bar and he's got the guide dog with him because the guide dog was going to keep him safe or some something to that effect. And I think I remember that. You hear the dog die. This thing, yeah, like the safety net this entire time. And he's yeah. out in the middle of nowhere with no clue how to get home. And his one like lifeline is gone. Oh my and God. Got me. And then of course the attic scene. Uh, oh yeah. Ooh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All the boat parts, literally every part with a boat I hated. We do need more boat horror because clearly I don't <laughs> like it. So I need more of it. Well, let's end on that note. Let, let's, let's end on more boat horror. More boat horror and more found footage horror. Perfect. One more time, if you want to tell our listeners, who are you again? Where can they connect with you for more more scares, more interaction, more stuff? Yeah, so I am incredibly online. You can find me on Twitter. I am Brie Morgan Books. I'm on Instagram and TikTok as Brianna Morgan Books. My website is briannamorganbooks.com. And you can find my books on Amazon, Godless now, which is great, Kobo, um, did I say Barnes and Noble? Barnes and Noble. Not yet. Just about everywhere. Apple Books, all over the place. And I also have signed copies on my website if that's if that's your thing. Nice. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. That just about wraps us up for this episode, though. <laughs> uh, to everybody listening, thanks so much for joining us. Please don't forget to like or subscribe or stare directly into the dark corners of the basement of the streaming service of your choice. Uh, And we'll see you next time. I am William Sterling, and this has been an episode of the Killer Mediums Podcast. Bye. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.